We were led in the first part of our worship by Dr. C. Larry Wilson, the Dean of Students of Montreat Anderson College and a ruling elder in the Montreat Church. Our second lesson is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. We are continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Some of our students have been gone for two Sundays, and uh, so you will have missed uh, one of the lessons that we had, and then last Sunday we had a guest minister, and so I want to go back just a little bit to pick up at verse 43, and then to read about three things that our Lord teaches us about concerning our worship. Let me start at verse 43 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said you, will, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers the same. And if you greet your brothers only, what do you more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When you therefore give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be honored of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now move down to verse 16. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. For some weeks we have been thinking about um, the Sermon on the Mount. In order for us to catch back up where we left off a few weeks ago, let me review just a little bit. When Jesus gave his famous message on the hill, he began by talking about a design for life 
that was really radical, that shattered all of the preconceptions of his disciples who were listening and the crowd that might have been out in the fringes listening. He told them that the characteristics of those who followed him would be those who were poor in spirit, those who mourned, those who were meek. By poor in spirit, he meant those who would be humble enough to recognize their need of him. By those who mourned, those who were sensitive, not only to their own sins, but the sins of the world. By the meek, he means those who are teachable and willing to submit to his authority to teach. Then those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who have gnawing pains in their stomach because they want more than anything else to know and to do the will of God. Last night I received a long-distance telephone call from a young man seeking God's will. And I told him on the phone, Jesus has said, if any man wills to do the will of my Father, the will of my Father will be revealed to him. You've already taken the first step. You've made yourself available. You're willing to do God's will. Now bide his time and be patient, and he'll lead you into doing his will. Well, people who have gone this far know what it is to experience the mercy of God and salvation. And when that mercy comes to us, we cannot withhold it from others. The greatest hypocrisy is to go to God and ask of him that he forgive us of our sins when we are not willing to forgive those who have sinned against us. That we cannot do. We short-circuit his love. The pure in heart are those whose motives are pure and who want to see God, and they see him. After this comes the peacemakers. We've seen a lot of talk and heard a lot of talk about peace in this past week. It's a great thing, and we hope and pray for some peace to come. But we know that peace which is made by man is not peace which has any permanent characteristics to it because of the failure of man. We are grateful for whatever measure of peace we enjoy, but we know that it must be a condition which is conferred by God and that ultimate peace will be only when the ground of our ultimate being, our God and our Savior, returns as the Prince of Peace to conquer. Those who have manifested these characteristics will not be understood by the world. They will be persecuted because they will be so much like their Savior who was persecuted by the world. But they will have an influence in the world. Someone has said that our king is a servant and his sign is a cross on a hill, that we die to self. Now this life of service, this life of death to self, has an interesting effect upon the world about us. It's like salt in that it staunches corruption and it adds flavor. It's like light in that it sheds knowledge so that we might know God's way of doing things. Judas, whom we'll be thinking about soon in preparation for uh, Holy Week, Judas was one who lost the salt and the light. Demas was another, a helper of Paul, who forsook him, having loved this present world who lost the salt and the light in his life. 
the glory departed. And this is what happens when we get ourselves away from the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Now, this is our influence as Christians who have manifested these characteristics in the world. Then Jesus taught that he, there is now being established a new relation to the old law. He said the old law had said, thou shalt do no murder. Jesus said, we'll go better than that. You won't even have any hateful thoughts, because that's where murder starts. Jesus said the old law said, thou shalt commit no adultery. Jesus said, we'll do even better than that. We won't tolerate any lustful thoughts, because that's where adultery begins. The old law said uh, divorce under the conditions that we make. Jesus said no divorce except for the cause of adultery. The old law said no, no false swearing. Jesus said you don't need to swear at all. The old law said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus said no retaliation and no revenge. The old law said love your neighbor and Hate your enemy. But Jesus said, I tell you to love your neighbor and to love your enemy as well. Well, these are staggering demands which he has made. And what's going to happen to people who really live up to these staggering demands? I was trying to think about the most influential books that I have read since coming to Montreat. I've been here about 18 years and I've read a lot of books in 18 years. But there are some of them that stick out in my mind because I've seen them change hearts and minds and lives and thinking amongst the congregation. I think the first of those books was the book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he expresses clearly that there is no such thing as cheap grace. In which he said that when Jesus bids a man to follow him, he asks him to come and die to die to himself. And Bonhoeffer, who practiced what he preached, and who shattered even the composure of his Nazi tormentors when they came to take him out of his cell and lead him up to the scaffold and place a noose about his neck and hang him, had to admit that they were shattered by the peace and the composure that God had put in this incredible martyr, in this great hero. I thought of another book that we had read, many of us. I remember going through the galley proofs of it, Through the Valley of the Kwai, by Ernest Gordon. He was one of those who took seriously all of these things that we have been reading about, and what effect did it have in his life? If you remember those stories that we have thought about before, some of us, but some of our young friends won't recall, Ernest Gordon was one of a number of British and Australian uh, prisoners of war who were taken captive by the Japanese and placed in a concentration camp on the River Kwai in Thailand. I can remember very well trying to find that place when I was in Thailand. You remember how brutally and cruelly they were treated by their captors. How there was a breakdown of discipline. How no man cared for the other. How it was dog eat dog and every man for himself. 
And then a strange thing began to take place. There was a big Scotsman named Sandy. And Sandy began to take care of one of his sick fellow prisoners. Sandy was a big, strong, powerfully built man. But Sandy began to waste away to practically nothing. But the sick man began to get more flesh on his bones. His ulcers, as horrible as they were, were cleansed. His bamboo cot on which he slept was debugged and kept clean by Sandy. Well, to make a long story short, the sick man lived and Sandy died. And so when they emptied out the duffel bag of Sandy, someone found a battered copy of the New Testament that had been practically worn to shreds. And when they looked at the New Testament and turned to those matchless chapters from the Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, they began to read something of what had gone on in this Sandy's life. And Ernest Gordon said they got together and they said, look, we're all going to die anyway, so why don't we just try to live by what Jesus is teaching here? How could you love these hateful Japanese captors who were so cruel? How could you love people who stole your food when you were sick? And yet they started practicing what Jesus taught, and as they did, what Ernest Gordon calls the miracle along the Kwai took place in their camp. And a great transformation took place in it. People who realized they were in the same boat decided that they would live by the laws Jesus had taught, no matter what it cost them, even if it meant their death. One of the most dramatic episodes occurred one day when a work detail had come in. All tired. They were building a bridge over the River Kwai. The Japanese captain had had the shovels counted that the men had been working with and one shovel was missing. And he was in a rage and so he screamed out to these poor prisoners and he said to them, the emperor has been very kind, he could have had your heads all cut off but he let you live. And now you're ingrates, you have not been responsive to his goodness, you have stolen the shovel, who stole the shovel, come forward. And no man came forward. This only infuriated the Japanese prisoner, Captain Moore, and so he began to shout at them all manner of angry things. And then finally he picked up a machine gun and said if he didn't have the shovel, then all of you die. All die. And Ernest Gordon said that one man came forward and said, I took the shovel. He said the Japanese grabbed a rifle, the Japanese captain, turned it around and held it by the barrel and slung the butt of the rifle into the man's head and knocked him to the ground. Then he stood over the man and beat his head into a pulp. And then he kept pounding his dead, lifeless body until his energy was spent and he had no more strength to beat the corpse with. And then when they counted the shovels, they found that not one single shovel was missing. This man had sacrificed his life in order that his fellows might live. Radical discipleship. But what a change it made in Ernest Gordon's life and in all of the rest of those who were there. Then we think about Corrie Tin Boom, 
who came here to Montreat and spoke here on this platform to our congregation. You remember how four members of her family died in a Nazi concentration camp. You remember her book, The Hiding Place. You remember a story of going back once into the city of Berlin and seeking to register in a hotel as she started to sign her name. And the hotel clerk turned around and she looked into his eyes and their eyes met each other. And she said all the hate and fury of her soul came up within her because she was looking eyeball to eyeball, right into the face of the man who had been responsible for the death of her beloved sister, who had cruelly beat her sister when she could not lift a shovel full of dirt, and Betsy had died. Four other, three other members of her family had died. And she said, when I looked at that man, I felt hate. But then I remembered that God had forgiven me. She said, he trembled, and I offered him the forgiveness of Christ. Well, she was dying to self. That's a staggering demand to love your enemies. And here, these that we have mentioned love their enemies and left an impression on the whole world. Charles Colson, another book that we read, The Famous Hatchet Man's Transformation. I'll never forget seeing him in person and listening to him and becoming absolutely convinced of the sincerity of his faith and seeing how a mighty, shrewd, and brilliant man had humbled himself to become a simple servant of Jesus Christ. These are people who lost their life to find it again by following the staggering demands of Jesus Christ here. Well, if we had our way, we would want the rain to fall only on the just and the unjust, and we would think, well, Lord, you know how horrible my wretched neighbor is. I hope it won't rain on him. Uh, he, he's such a rogue anyway, so don't do him any favors. We would pick things out and do things very badly. We don't have enough justice to do that. So Jesus says God lets his rain fall on the just and the unjust. He waits for the time of harvest. We don't have that. And then he wanted his disciples to know that after these things have taken place within them, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. It means grow into Christian maturity. Don't quit growing at the Sunday school level. Keep on reading your Bible, keep on praying, and keep on growing. Now he deals not simply with the relationships of inward characteristics and influence to the world, and the relationship to the old law, but he talks about what goes on in church. Some of you have heard one of my favorite little poems, Within my earthly temple there's a crowd. There's one of us who's humble, one who's proud. There's one who's brokenhearted for his sins, another unrepentant sits and grins. From many a worldly care I would be free if I could but once determine which is me. Well, now then, we're all in church this morning. Look at his words, take heed. Take heed means beware. It's a strong word which tells us that our worship of God has to be exercised with a great deal of caution. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. He doesn't say, if you're going to give 
gifts. He takes it for granted that we're going to give gifts. When is really what is put here, when you do your alms. He knows that we as believers in him will do our alms. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, when you do good things, it's a Christian is to do good things. You remember in another place, he says, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And this is not contradictory here. But one way we're doing our good works to be seen of men so that they take notice of it. And the other way, we're doing our good works so that God sees them. You know, we're prone to think that the preacher is the performer and the congregation is the audience. But God is the audience. He knows what's going on inside every head just as though there were a little television monitor right over your heads. And he can see every single thought. And he knows what's taking place in your minds. He knows how sincere we are with our worship, whether we really want him to speak to us or whether we really want to change or whether anything's going to happen. He sees to the motive. Therefore, he wants us to live lives that can be seen through. Someone has said, the man who has Christ in back of him never has to worry about who sees through him. That's a good thing to remember. The man who has Christ in back of him never has to worry about who sees through him. Dwight L. Moody used to say, if I take care of my reputation, my, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. If I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. And so Jesus wants us to be that way, honest before him. When thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogue. This is kind of interesting to me, um, the hypocrites. I have a statement that all hypocrites are actors, but all actors aren't hypocrites. It's just that simple. Uh, the word hypocrite originally meant an actor. They didn't have any makeup artists who could take a beautiful lady and turn her into an old hag or an old hag and turn her into a beautiful lady. They, they had to rely on masks. And so they put a mask in front of them. And uh, the word hypocrite was a, a word for an actor. And Jesus does not want his followers to be actors who put on a, a scene for men to to see. He wants us to understand that, and he seeks to put this across to us, so he talks very plainly about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is unreality. You see, the thing which challenged us about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the thing uh, which challenged us about Ernest Gordon, and the things which challenged us about Corrie ten Boom and Charles Colson, is the reality in their life. They were pushed to a place where they had to be real and their reality speaks to our hearts. 
So a hi hypocrisy uh, means unreality. It means insincerity. It means pretense. And so Jesus says, don't sound a trumpet before thee. Now, you know the various explanations of that, the throwing of the coins and the trumpet-shaped things. I was interested in reading John Calvin's explanation of this. He seemed to think that these uh, uh, scribes and Pharisees were such hypocrites that they had some trumpeteers who went before them blasting a trumpet uh, to assemble a crowd. Now, ostensibly, what they were doing was supposed to be calling the poor so that the poor would hear the trumpet and come and get the goodies that the scribe of the Pharisee was going to give away. And the people would say, oh, that, isn't that wonderful? Charles Spurgeon had another little note that was very interesting. He said, beware of the man that has a trumpet in one hand and a penny in the other. And uh, there's some truth to be remembered there. The, the, this is, by the way, where you get the expression tooting his own horn. When we talk of someone blowing his own horn. Uh, so the, the scribes and the Pharisees would make a grand display by having a fanfare of trumpets blast, and then they gave out their gifts. And so Jesus condemns this, and he says, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, thy, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now there are times, of course, when good works are discovered, which are an inspiration to us all. This week, some of our young people have inspired us because they wish to have a time of fasting in order to give the money that would come from that particular meal uh, to World Vision so that hungry people might be fed. Last, um, uh, fall, last December, I believe it was, I saw Stan Mooneyham, in the, who is the president of World Vision, and one of those long five-hour telethons about world hunger. I thought I'd turn it on and watch it for just a few minutes, but I wound up watching it for the whole five hours. I watched it because of what I was seeing take place, the great needs that existed in the world, and it was so well uh, presented. And it was not the celebrities that kept my attention. They had uh, uh, the lady from The Sound of Music there, and they had... Uh, um, B.J. Thomas and Tom Landry and Charles Colson, and they had uh, many other people that were great celebrities who were talking. But the man that really attracted me more than any of the others was a man by the name of Mario De Vita, a good Italian Catholic who had a great knowledge of the Bible. Well, Mario De Vita, and I wrote to Stan Mooneyham and got a letter back from him about Mario, had watched one of these hunger programs and he couldn't get these hungry people off his mind. He and his wife had worked for years to build themselves the dream house that they'd always wanted. And I think the house cost something like $60,000. They had the thing built and they loved it. But Mario De Vita said that as he prayed after watching these hungry people in the world, he thought Jesus made all these commands about the poor and about our responsibilities to them. And he thought, what if that were my family across the seas and I didn't have any way to go over there and help them, what would I do? And he said, well, I would find some agency that would reach them and I would give them some money to take to them to help them. But he said, 
They're in such terrible need. Where would I get the money? Everything is budgeted up. He said, well, you've got this big house that you've been working on for years. He said he argued with the Lord about that. But the scriptures came back to him again and again. And so finally, when he was backed up by the scriptures, he did a very unusual thing. He sold his house. His wife concurred in it. His children, he sold his house. He flew out to Monrovia, California, where World Vision's headquarters is. Went into the office of Stan Mooneyham and took him a check for his house. Mooneyham didn't know what to do with it. He tried to explain to the man what he had done. The man said it was all right, that he had to do it, that it was just compulsion that had been laid on him by God. Tremendous faith. Well, he worked for some, I think, a chemical factory there in, in New Jersey or New York. He went back and he told Stan Mooneyham that later, the Lord added to him another house and another neighborhood, and that his needs were met, that his family was happier than ever before, that they had been united and strengthened through an act of devotion that had been done, an act of alms that had been carried out at a very devastating sacrifice. These are some of the things that we think about. Then Jesus, of course, talks about prayer. He warns us that we are not to pray like the Pharisees pray who loved to stand on the streets and who wanted to attract the attention of men. But he said, what you do is to be done before you and before God and that God sees in secret and God will reward your secret prayer. He wants us to be very honest with him and he will reward that secret prayer. Someone was, gave me a little thing about prayer. I thought about this last night because of some disturbing things that had happened yesterday that kept me awake. About one o'clock, I got out of bed to pray because I'd re read a little story about two little girls and when they had started to go to bed at night, their mother was gone someplace. There were little children who had been taught to pray and one little girl named Lillian said to her sister, she said, well, I'm not going to pray tonight. I don't believe there's any use in it. It doesn't do any good. And the other little girl said, well, you better pray. And she said, well, I'm not. And she just jumped in bed. And the other little girl got on her knees and said her prayer. And then she got in her bed. The lights were out. Everything was quiet. After a little while, the first little girl said, there's something wrong with this pillow. Said, it, it, it doesn't feel right. And she thumped it and moved it around. And then finally, the other little girl said, I know what's the matter with it. She said, what? She said, there's not any prayer in it. <laughs> and so, so there was quiet. Then the other little girl was heard to sneak out of bed and pray. And then she got back into bed and went to sleep. I remembered the story and I did the same thing and I went to sleep. Because you learn to leave it in the hands of the Lord. This is what he wants us to do. When he came to the business of fasting, there's so much for us to know there. In the Old Testament, you will 
read that on the Day of Atonement they were to fast. And uh, this was just once a year. The scribes and the Pharisees fasted twice in a week. And Jesus' disciples must have thought that they were very heroic people to be fasting twice in a week. But Jesus wasn't impressed by it because he knew that they were putting on an act for other people to see. And so he wasn't taken with their act. He said, don't disfigure your face like that. If you look at the fasts in the Old Testament, they're interesting. You remember when Esther saved her nation, the modern Iran? She told Mordecai to proclaim a fast to show the sincerity of prayer. You remember when Jonah preached at Nineveh, the king was so moved that a fast was proclaimed. Do you remember other incidents in the Old Testament when Jonathan and Saul were slain and David said, oh, how the mighty have fallen, a fast was proclaimed. When David had sinned against God in the matter of, of taking someone's wife who was not his, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and Nathan pointed out his sin, David fasted and prayed. It shows something of getting down to the basics before God. In the New Testament, Jesus, before he selects his apostles, he spends the night in fasting. He spends uh, that long period of 40 days and 40 nights in fasting and in prayer. And then, of course, in the New Testament, when you read about Saul of Tarsus' conversion on the road to Damascus, he fasted after he was converted and came to Christ. There's nothing that suspends fasting for us. It's funny that those of us who are evangelical Christians are very much promoting all the other inward things about the devotional life, but we need to, to devote, devote more time to this matter of fasting, which is taught us plainly in Scripture. When Cornelius fasted and prayed, God sent Peter to preach to him the message which opened the door to the Gentiles. There's not only the fasting which takes away food so that we might be reminded of Christ, but there is also a type of fasting in which we do away. During this Lenten season, certain of our friends deny themselves some things in order that they might think more about the Lord. One of the best examples that I know of this, and one of the things that really did the tremendous amount of good, was when David Wilkerson, you remember him? That's another book that we've read that's touched us all. The man who wrote The Cross and the Switchblade. Some of you saw the film. You know how all that got started? It was right interesting. Davy Wilkerson was staying up one night watching the Late Late Show in the little town in Pennsylvania where he was a pastor in an Assemblies of God church. And he said that he had noticed that there was not much power in his ministry and he couldn't figure it out. He wondered why it was so powerless. And then he got to looking at the television set. And he thought, well, maybe the Lord's trying to tell me that I ought to fast something besides prayer. Maybe I ought to fast away from some of the entertainment that I spend my time in all the time. So he said, I think I'll give up the TV set. So the next morning he told his wife, he said, you know, I prayed last night and I think the Lord wants us to get rid of the TV set so I'll pray more. His wife didn't think much of the idea. Her name was Gwen. 
He said, I, I even worked out a, a sign. He said, I'm going to ask God to give me a sure sign of whether or not this is the thing to do. He said, I'm going to run an ad in the paper and put the TV up for sale. And he said, if somebody calls or comes by the house and wants it, an hour after the, after the newspapers go on the street, he said, no, 30 minutes after they go on the street, then I'll know the Lord's telling me to get rid of the TV. He felt he was pretty sure with that sign. And so sure enough, he went down and took out an ad in the newspaper and uh, to sell his television set. He said that he would never forget sitting there on the couch with his wife and child and the television set on one side and the clock and the telephone on the other. And he said they knew what time the papers were out. And he said he saw 25 minutes go by on the clock. And he said he just was about to turn around and say to his wife, well, you're right about this. And so we won't sell a TV set. But he said the phone rang at 25 minutes past. And uh, he said the man on the other end of the phone said, do you have a TV set for sale? That's right, he said. It's an RCA in good condition, 19-inch screen, two years old. How much do you want for it? Well, Wilkerson thought quickly, and he put a high price then. He said, $100. The guy said, I'll take it. Have it ready. I'll be by in 15 minutes to pick it up. <laughs> he was trapped. The man came and took it. As a result of it, Wilkerson spent some nights praying. And while he was praying, he looked into a wire service release of a gang war that had occurred in New York City. He saw some toughs who had killed a man just for the fun of it and decided that God was leading him to go to New York to do something with those people. He went to New York City and out of his efforts there has come a work that God has blessed and some of us here can bear testimony to that fact because it is a fact and we've seen the results of it. Well, I don't know how this applies to you because all of this is a very personal matter. But it does apply to each one of us. It means the offering up of a sacrifice on our own will so that we might be drawn closer uh, to our Lord. Our Lord wants our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he wants it to come uh, from the inside and work its way out. Let us, let us bow in prayer. And now, O oh God, our Father, we bless thee for the searching truth of your word. We pray that thou wilt help us to know that there is no way in which we can successfully deceive you because you can see completely through us. Therefore, keep us from trying to deceive others and from trying to deceive ourselves. Help us to be willing to die to self that Christ might live through us, that even those who oppose us might be the beneficiaries of the love of Jesus shining through our lives, that we may be devoid of hypocrisy and open so that you can work with us. We pray that you will help us in our giving, help us in our praying, help us in our fasting, to live in such a way that we shall be drawn closer to you and be more faithful and reach others for your glory. Forgive us for the ways in which we failed. Take us from this day to a fresh new start, we ask in Jesus' name. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our helper and our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.